everybody to Blissfully Aware, the show in which three opinionated people discuss what's going on in fandom and nerd news in general. I am Bliss, and as always, I'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts, Kelty and Kendra. Hello. Howdy. And today, y'all, Kendra had the lovely idea that we could review a very specific, very good book called Tumblr Porn by Anna Valens, I want to say is maybe how you say her last name. Valens or, or Valens? I would go with Valens. I'd say Valens, yeah. Yes, uh, this is a, a great little book. I'm pretty sure that the ebook version costs like five bucks uh, if you're into ebooks. I'm not, I hate them, so I paid extra <laughs> to have the paper book shipped to Canada. Shipping costs more than the book, actually. Fucking, that sucked. But it was worth it, because I really liked this little book. It's part of a series that is apparently going to be published soon. I don't know. <laughs> um, the series of which this is the first is called Remember the Internet. And it's basically a historical slash anthropological survey of the early internet era, which we are leaving now, decidedly. The era pre-social media and sort of early social media mm. before Facebook and Twitter and Instagram had become these conglomerates and they were just kind of a very new, wacky thing that everyone hadn't figured out yet. So this first volume, Tumblr Porn, is exactly what you think it's about. <laughs> it's about how Tumblr, pre-2018, was kind of unique in social media spaces that it not only incorporated and allowed, but, like, encouraged adult content, as it's called, kind of euphemistically, and just straight-up pornography, believing that pornography and human sexuality are, are vital components of the social experience, which is what social media purportedly wants to emphasize. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't anymore, at least. They just want to steal your data. But uh, there, were, there were some naive idealists at the beginning, except for Mark Zuckerberg. He just wanted to hit on women who rejected him. Yep. Uh, I don't know anything about David Karp, actually, the founder of Tumblr, and whether or not he is problematic, so... Maybe I stuck my foot in my mouth there. But anyway. I'd assume he is. He is white and a man. <laughs> oh, Kelty. Your takes are so scalding. <laughs> Aren't they? And original. Right? Mm -hmm. Well. And so the book is tiny. It's 128 pages. We both read it in a day. It's an incredible kind of like, it traces the author's uh, own experience using the early internet, or I guess early social media, kind of graduating from DeviantArt to 4chan and later to Tumblr and then finally to Twitter after the Tumblr adult content ban because Twitter, to my knowledge, is the only major social media platform that currently allows explicit content. That's changing. That is changing, yes. They're, they are being sued to stop that from happening. I should actually look up exactly the who is suing them. But yeah, that's not going to last because the way social media makes a profit is one, advertising, and two, selling data. And people don't want to advertise over your MILF porn. Yeah. 
because the advertising world is very corporate. And we have a cult of the child in America where we view children as sort of these perfect innocents Mm. that life only ever serves to degrade. Like you're kind of born perfect and then life ruins you. (laughs) It's very puritanical. It comes from the, the Victorians like most things in America do. It comes from the Victorian literal cult of the child and the sort of worship of childhood that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's puritanical, like most things the Victorians did. Anyway, we'll get into all that later. Uh, Yeah, so the book is Tumblr Porn by Anna Valens, and we loved it and Mm -hmm. cannot recommend it enough. If you want to go pick it up, please do. It's an amazing little internet history book, the sorts of which will become more popular and be written by, like, douchey established academians in five to ten years but this is one of the first that's kind of primary document that you can read about someone who was fucking there man saw it with their own eyes yeah god had some vietnam flashbacks for this one Mm -hmm. oh yeah it was weird yeah watching someone else's experience but like progressive life cycle on the internet and how it shaped their identity and specifically their sexuality as a queer woman and a transgender person. Yes, it it was very hashtag relatable, as mm-hmm. the kids say. <laughs> yeah, shout out for giantess porn, by the way. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. I mean, whatever you're into, I guess. That's not for me. That's, <laughs> That's not for me, but I'm glad you like it. That's what I, I'm into. And it's not a very long book either, um... So very easy to read quickly. Yes, we both read it in an afternoon. Yeah, um, I definitely, I am one of those psychopaths that writes and highlights in books that I own. And I did a lot of highlighting. I definitely want to go back and make some of my own notes in a second read through just because I enjoyed it that much. Yeah, yeah what I, what I do too. when I don't have, uh, well, when I had a Twitter and now that I don't have a Twitter currently, uh, is I just take photos of my favorite passages and share them. Like when they, there's a really salient point, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, I want to capture that. Mm-hmm. All right, so where do you want to start? Let's see here. So it goes through and begins talking about sex workers and why sex workers are important and were important in establishing sort of the base of the community in Tumblr. Or the internet. Which I think is really interesting. I don't think the average Joe Blow thinks of sex workers being as influential to the way that we consume media and our social experience. I think maybe the average Joe Blow probably doesn't even think of sex workers as people. No. But (laughs) they're incredibly influential. I mean, this is an old example, but the reason that we use VHSs is because of how easy it was to shoot porn on. (laughs) Yes. And it has progressed that way with DVDs and instant downloads. The way that we consume porn sort of dictates what format our media is going to come in. Yes. Uh, Whatever the porn industry decides to side with is the format and the technology that survives. Because pornography is such a huge industry. They have basically the sole power to determine which technology 
survives and which doesn't. So it happened with VHS and Betamax back in the 80s. Um, it happened with DVDs. It happened with Blu-ray and uh, HD DVD even in sort of 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. If you're old enough to remember, there was a good year and a bit where Sony and fuck, I don't know who backed HD DVDs. Blu-ray was Sony's format. Someone else had HD DVDs and Blu-ray won because that's the format that pornography, like professional uh, shoots went with to distribute their work. Toshiba. Toshiba, thank you. And yeah, so now we are kind of over uh, physical media, <laughs> I, uh, currently at least, until streaming crashes, and trust me, it's coming. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of the last big format war that took place that pornography decided. Like, the book sort of traces a brief history of the internet and talks about what was called Usenet. So yeah. Usenet was like a very proto-form of the internet where basically anyone could, like, make a bulletin board is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Like, you had a topic, and you put that in the title of your bulletin board. So you would have things like early examples being, you know, homosexual or transvestism, which was, you know, a kind of proto-word for sort of, you know, gender questioning. Literally means to cross-dress, but it also used to lump in uh, transgender people as well. Um, You could have, you know, your weird giant-ass kinks if you want. It was a a place where people were able to talk anonymously about their true desires, and the anonymous part was what made it important, because... You weren't, like, in early early Pride parades, for example, sometimes people would attend these parades and, like, walk in these parades with paper bags over their heads so they couldn't be identified Mm -hmm. because it was so dangerous to be out publicly. You could lose your job, you could be disgraced by your family, you could be disowned. Um, And so people wanted to attend these events to indicate, I guess, that there are more queer people in this community than you might think, but also couldn't abide the personal risks to their life and safety. So literally, people would walk down the streets with paper bags on their heads in early pride parades. And so this is sort of an online version of that, where you could talk about your true self without fear of it negatively impacting your life if bigoted or discriminatory people found out about this facet of you. Mm-hmm. And so sex workers were very in on that, like from the beginning of the internet, from the days of Usenet, because sex work is dangerous, because it's illegal mm-hmm. in most countries in the world. It is it is decriminalized here in Canada, but it's effectively illegal uh, because of all the other legislation around it. Yep. Um, it's illegal in America, except for a few counties in Nevada. Nevada. Nevada, excuse me. Amsterdam. And that's where my knowledge ends. I don't know. There might be some others. Yeah. But so sex work is dangerous, especially what they call full service sex work, which is penetrative sex, usually with a man. Yes. Whether whether you are homosexual sex worker or a straight sex worker, your clientele is largely men. Uh-huh. Just the way of it. Not that women don't use sex workers. They do. And so being able to meet under the guise of being sex workers, being able to screen clients, being able to have a community, a safety net of some kind was like hugely 
revolutionary for sex workers who had sort of, during the late 70s, early 80s, really been restricted from public life. If you know about sort of New York or LA in the 70s, you know that despite <laughs> despite being technically illegal, uh, sex work was very common and heavily advertised and it was it was public almost. Like there were peep shows in Times Square uh-huh. and things like that. And now you know, there's a Disney store and stuff. There's been <laughs> there's been like a huge gentrification of, of this particular industry. And so that started to happen kind of towards the end of the 70s, early 80s. Reagan and like broken window policies really had a hand in making sex work invisible. It didn't get rid of it, obviously. No. You will never stop people from wanting to fuck. No. But it definitely made it impossible or dangerous to talk about or advertise oneself or even seek out publicly. So the internet, the early Usenet era, sort of in the early 80s, I believe it's like 83, was was a void for that ability to, to congregate in public and, you know, ply one's trade and make a living. And so Usenet was sort of the very first sex work space on the internet. Yeah, and the internet is, I want to say nebulous. It's always changing. It's never one single thing. So you constantly have to evolve. A lot of different websites cropped up after Usenet. Uh, Some that I haven't quite figured out what the age demographic for the show is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Too early to say. But if you remember what 4chan is... 4chan was a good example of almost a proto-Tumblr. Kind yeah, and, yeah, and she even makes that argument in, in the book. Yeah, because yeah. they're both, um, oh, what, is, what does she say? Endless... Endless scrolling. Bottomless. Bottomless, bottomless scrolling. scrolling. Yeah, it's image boards, the way that uh, 4chan is formatted, is just the newest post is at the top. So if a board is busy enough and enough people are posting content, uh, if you just refresh the page, there will always be something new, which is kind of a proto version of the bottomless scrolling feature that basically every mobile social media app has today. A way to just sort of permanently capture your attention with something novel and something new. And it was definitely different from Live Journal, which, gosh, pre Tumblr Live Journal, pre Strike Through Live Journal. Yeah. I miss. Pre 2007 Live Journal. And for those unaware, Live Journal was basically a blogging site where you had your own journal as it were, which was essentially functioned like a diary. You would make text entries, you could include photos, but they had to be, like, hosted elsewhere. And, yeah, like, you would just sort of be like, this is how my day went, or whatever your blog was focused on. Like, you could have a blog that was focused on other stuff. And then you also had this function called communities, where there was, like, a mod who ran the community, and everyone, or at least people who inv- who were involved in the community, who joined the community, could contribute to this community's journal, air quotes. So it functioned a little bit more like a forum, 
not quite though, but so there was like a personal space and then you could enjoy communities that were usually centered around a shared interest. Like it could be about a show, it could be about hiking, it could be about certain type of food, like whatever, you know, it's the internet. The, whatever interests you, you're going to find more people interested in it. Yeah. And so you could have, you could maintain this involvement in multiple communities because you could be part of several communities and, you know, post your weird porn in one community and then talk about your dog in another community and talk about, you know, Thai food in a third community. <laughs> and the only way that they were connected was by you. Like, it didn't interfere with your personal feed, as it were. And it was, yeah, it was very much about, like, curating your own interests and having still, like, your own personal bubble uh, in the form of, like, your journal. Yeah. As opposed to the, like stream of consciousness endless posting new content generation machine that we have today which i'm pretty sure an algorithm invented and no one actually wants to use social media this way but it's what we have for uh. now because mark zuckerberg and jack decide that we do <laughs> yeah so tumblr was a god when i joined was an up-and-coming fandom space with some of the best parts of live journal and some of the best parts of 4chan combined. I like, because I'm easy to please, I like the bottomless scrolling aspect because I didn't have to look around through different communities and I have to engage with people. I could just go to one page and image board style, it was all there for me to just mindlessly scroll through. And once you built up a following of people, you had an entertaining enough dashboard, which is what they called the homepage. Yeah, so they yeah. build upon this idea that you can sort of amalgamate your interests into like a single feed of content. So you find someone who runs, I don't know, like a bakery blog, and then you find someone who runs a travel blog, someone who runs a cosplay blog, if that's what you're into. And once you've followed enough people, they will all just show up on your dash sort of in the order that they have been posted. Like, it'll be like, ah, porn, ah, cupcakes, ah, <laughs> cosplay tutorial. And <laughs> it sort of comes at you in that, like, patchwork snapshot kind of way where it's just like content, content, content. And there's no, like, division of space. It's all, it's all one thing. And it was a fucking hit. Yeah, it was because this had happened just... I think Tumblr launched in 2008. And so this was just after the strike through of LiveJournal, wherein LiveJournal purged what they claimed was child pornography blogs from their website. Turns out a lot of it was A, fandom blogs, B, communities based around survivors of child sex abuse, uh -huh. and... Uh, consenting kink blogs. And so basically the signal was we being people who want to talk about their sexuality, people who have perhaps marginalized identities, queer people, anyone who wants to talk about non-normative sexual practice. We are not welcome here anymore and we have to find somewhere else to go because a lot of these blogs had like years of material hosted on them and they were just gone now. Yep. And we're not coming back. So 
yeah, it was a real first instance of the platform like turning on their user base. We see that a lot now where social media companies will purge certain sorts of user bases and they usually try and say, you know, it's terrorists, it's child pornographers. But a lot of the time, you know, algorithms are not perfect and regular people get their accounts taken away from them, get their data taken away from them. And there's basically no recourse because these companies are huge now and they don't fucking care about a single user getting fucked over because they have they have millions, in Facebook's case, billions of users. Yeah. And so after that happened on LJ, basically most fandom sex workers and kinky people and the queer community that overlaps all three of those sets... <laughs> moved to Tumblr, which was a selling point in its early days, was that it was sex worker friendly, porn friendly, kink friendly, you know, so long as it's not illegal, we will host it. Yep. We think, like, there, there's even an interview with David Karp in here where he talks about how hosting pornography was seen as an asset to their their company's MO and not a detractor. ha <laughs> I mean, uh, sex sells. That's the irony of it all. Well, until it doesn't sell. Well, that that's the irony, is that everybody insists that it does sell, but nobody wants to sell it. Well, because then you're a filthy smut peddler. Exactly. Hmm. Because... That's why this weird, like, brand of consumerism sexuality, like, the amount of sexuality that's appropriate for a Budweiser commercial, Yeah, that's what sells. Yeah. Like, just, just the titillation, the implication of sexuality, like, which is always white and hetero and, you know, male gazy. It's never kinky people, queer people, people of color having mm. non-normative sex. No. It's very much white hetero masculinity sex cells. Yes. Yeah. So that's basically all you need to know about why people start showing up to Tumblr. I don't want to go through each blow by blow just because I want you to buy and read this book and share it around with like-minded people because it is a really, I think, succinct explanation of the start to end of Tumblr. It started great and fun and ended, well, I mean, it's hanging on in there, but it's done. It's over. It died a slow, painful death. Mm-hmm. And she makes the point in the book that it never even actually worked. It never mm-hmm. even really functioned properly. Like, no one, not even David Karp's original company, was able to actually turn this into a profitable model. Yeah. I think it's important to share this book with people who aren't like-minded, because it shows how they're incorrect, and that's always good. I like to tell people when they're wrong. The fact that I get in conversations with these people and when they're like, I think we should bring back kink shaming. And I'm like, that's Swerf Frederick. And Turf Frederick. And Turf Frederick. And they're like, I'm not a turf, I'm literally gay. And it's like, okay, well... Most turfs are, you fucking <laughs> idiot! <laughs> I, have, I have news for you. You can still be bad for the community if you're a part of the community. That's what log cabin Republicans are. And I should know, because I was one for several years, 
but daddy never loved me anyway, so just drop it. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, Yahoo purchased Tumblr from David Karp's company for 1.1 billion with a B American dollars. I'm pretty sure then it was sold to Verizon in like 2016 or something, 17. It is now owned by Automatic, which is the company that owns WordPress, for three million. Fucking hell! That is a one hundred percent decrease, almost. <laughs> that's, that yeah, is that's like, pretty bad. Like, holy shit! That's that's how unmonetizable Tumblr is, and she makes a point of saying that like, what Tumblr had, what really propelled its success in the early teens was this cool factor. Tumblr was cool. It was it. It had, you know, the je ne sais quoi that people are always trying to capture. Uh And Anna Valens argues, I think correctly, that it was not anything that Tumblr did that made it cool. It was the marginalized communities that made Tumblr an interesting space. Like, you know, it's a tale as old as time, Queer people, people of color, sex workers, marginalized peoples are the ones who have to try harder and get creative to make their lives safe for themselves. They have to organize different sorts of space in order to live as safely as possible in the world, both in real life and in digital spaces nowadays. And because they are doing things counterculturally and non-normatively people who are normal who look at you know the normative way of doing things and are kind of they fit into that normative way but they're also kind of bored with it they kind of ape after marginalized coolness let's say Uh (laughs) like the way that madonna took voguing from black queer kids in new york and made it a like by like a pop song dance like yeah. that's like the most blatant example voguing was invented by black queer kids in new york city in the 80s in the ballroom scene and madonna or madonna's dance choreographer or whoever incorporated it into a pop song and now everyone in the fucking world knows what voguing is and they think it's something that madonna invented yeah and so that's that's really, I guess, an important insight into the Tumblr ecosystem and what made it cool initially and what drives that coolness in a way that literally cannot be monetized. Like, it's not something that capitalism can produce. That's why there's no such thing as corporate coolness. Like, you can't ever really be a corporation and be, you know, in with the cool Vogue whatever thing. It's all just gentrification again. The internet's just going through its own gentrification. Like Times Square before it, that used to sort of proudly and boldly be a space for sex workers, now is no longer. Again, sex work hasn't gone anywhere. People are still doing it. They are just doing it more dangerously now. And it's a form of labor that is deserving of compensation like any other sort of labor. And all things like FOSTA-SESTA and explicit content bans have done is made sex work less safe. And I know I'm not saying anything radical here, but there's a real 
battered woman syndrome with fucking with with mainstream corporate culture and marginalized communities where they like our quirkiness and you know our creativity and they want what we have like they want art or they want culture or they want sex but they don't want to compensate you fairly for it because you're a subjugated class mm-hmm. and that is just sort of repeating itself in digital space now the way it played out in the 70s and in England in sort of the 1890s, 1900s, and in Florence in the 1490s, and just wherever there have been sex workers in history, and they've enjoyed a modicum of comfort and safety. Because actually, this is completely unrelated to what I was just about to say, but if, if we're leaving the topic of the book, I wanted to bring this up. Uh, in Tumblr porn, Anna Valens quotes a uh, person named Tada Hozumi. She calls Tada Hozumi a cultural somatics practitioner. Whatever the fuck that is, I don't know. <laughs> but this cultural somatics practitioner coined the term accountability abuse, which I think is genius. You might know accountability abuse as cancel culture, mm-hmm. which is sort of a misnomer and is a term a lot of people don't like. And yes, I think what is, quote, a more succinct way to define violent behaviors, commonly labeled call-out culture or cancel culture, is this term accountability abuse, wherein under the guise of holding one accountable for one's, you know, bad take or whatever, their abuse, their misstep, you weaponize social justice rhetoric and discourse in order to abuse that person. Yep. So in this way, it's very much relative to the power that one has. So I don't think you can necessarily, in the model of accountability abuse, you can't really accountability abuse celebrities the way you can, quote, cancel them. But you can definitely accountability abuse your peers, and members of your own community, which definitely does happen. And yeah. both of those phenomenons are labeled cancel culture, which is why I think people get so heated about the term cancel culture. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's not a uniform experience. It is directly correlated to how much power you have in a given community. And it's often, of course, used by marginalized people upon marginalized people of their own community. We're doing it to ourselves. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh-huh. And so... Yeah, I just wanted to credit uh, Tada Hozumi, you cultural somatics practitioner, for coining this term, and Anna Valens for bringing it to my attention. Yeah, I really enjoyed their breakdown of that. What people consider cancel culture versus what cancel culture actively is. Because I'm a big fan of holding people accountable. I'm not a big fan of harassing them or Mm -hmm. never letting them learn, grow, and move past it. And that was, like, she, Anna Valens, in the book, directly ties that to the way Tumblr functioned. Wherein, when you reblog something on Tumblr, sort of like a retweet, but not really. When you reblog something, like, a copy of it is posted to your blog. So even if the original post is deleted, the copy lives on forever. Yeah. She says that in in this uh, function, basically fights and disagreements and arguments are preserved forever and usually 
when someone quote loses or someone wins there is now no way to ever escape from this past argument it could be years in the past and if someone reblogs this post like a whole new wave of harassment can be sent this person's way and like we see that sort of on tweets now and old retweets but it's not quite the same as tumblr where these arguments or whatnot can are preserved forever and once you once you say a thing once you post a thing and someone reblogs it you no longer have control over it i mean in in twitter they just get around that by taking screenshots but you know screenshots can be faked they can Mm -hmm. they frequently are Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah tumblr at its high point was great i mean it didn't function and you couldn't monetize it but it was a really cool way to meet people of a similar mindset or to discover things about yourself that you didn't know discover things you like discover things you don't like Mm -hmm. yeah and i really i credit tumblr for discovering my own queerness I grew up very repressed in a very religious household in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Smack in the middle of Texas. So I was very closeted and self-hating and in denial. And not only coming into fandom, which I think is inherently queer <laughs> yeah. in its own right, uh, coming into fandom communities with ease the way it was on Tumblr I was able to come to terms with who I was as a person. And what's more is Tumblr is how I met you both. And uh, Tumblr gets all the credit in my book for that one. Because all I did was search the general location, the nearest city, and happened to find Kelty. Me! (laughs) And she turned out to not be an ex-murderer. And we've been friends ever since. Uh, so yeah, Tumblr has a beautiful rosy snapshot in my heart that does not make it any less terrible. <laughs> oh, definitely not. But no. like, the internet definitely, like, it did help me to, like, way before Tumblr, figure out some things about myself. And Tumblr basically helped me with the whole log cabin republicanism, definitely. I was still struggling with a lot of self-hate and bigotry before Tumblr and then I I was like, oh shit, this is uh this isn't normal or good. I should probably look into these things that I was raised on. Which is nice because I was able to talk to people who were unlike myself and it's it's helpful. But yeah, it's it's not perfect by any means. And some people went a little too hard on how it should be woke. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, recasting one's enemies in the most inflammatory contexts in order to recast yourself as a victim is something, again, that Anna Valenz talks a lot about in the book and was kind of nurtured by Tumblr in the way that the content engine of Tumblr, like, prioritized conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, you think, like, hot take dog piles are popular on Twitter nowadays, those were invented on Tumblr. Yeah. That's that's where that sort of accountability abuse was first honed to to its, you know, 
perfect Lamborghini engine that it is nowadays. I mean, nowadays it's almost a playbook. You could, like, set your watch by the stages of, like, a Tumblr callout, or, sorry, a fucking Twitter callout. Mm, and yeah. I'm going to quote uh, a different book, Sarah Shulman's Conflict is Not Abuse, uh, which is genius and is should be required reading for anyone in any sort of marginalized or activist community. Quote, at the same time that pervasive abuse and violence remain unaddressed in casual practice, once someone is established as a victim and the other described as, quote, abusive, stalking, violent, policing, or shaming, the conversation ends. The accusation of abuse itself can be a tactic of silencing. Once the abuse charge is organized and launched, it becomes possible for large groups of people to dislike and even punish some targeted person without even knowing exactly what they are accused of having done. So that's basically a nice little encapsulation of what real accountability abuse would be, is that it is a model that divides people into victims and abuser roles, and they can never be the same thing. One person is one at all times in every interaction, mm -hmm. and... It is always good to destroy abusers and always good to protect victims. Mm -hmm. And so you can see firsthand on Twitter how fucking good that dogma is working for us, how good that theoretical model functions when exposed to the light of day. Well, if we're perfectly honest, it's more important to these people to attack the abuser yes. than to protect the, the victim. quote abuser, yes. Yeah. Which is why it's not really a model of restorative justice or any stupid fucking thing that it purports to be because the first step is always to attack someone not to protect the victim you know whether or not someone is actually a victim or an abuser is you know up for debate but the goal is always like further punishment yes. like further abuse which you'll quite like, very obviously, once you get past, like, three cycles, just ratchets itself into, like, eventually someone has to die. Yeah. <laughs> but they're totally fine in threatening people to die because it's abusers. Yes, their, their threats of violence are good, actually, because they are against abusers. Air quotes. Yeah. And pointing out that violence is not the answer makes you the abuser. Yes. It does. Yes. Anything that is counter to what they want is abuse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was really impressed with how succinct this book was. Uh, to the point where I almost wish it had been longer, but that would sort of negate the point of it being succinct. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will definitely in the future look out for more of her writing on this subject because... Yes, I do think her argument is incredibly accessible, cogent. She doesn't use, like, stupid jargon where it's unnecessary. And, yeah, I am, I am looking forward to these history of the internet anthropological books coming out more and more in the coming decade, as I'm sure they will. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to read, just for funsies, the as-of-yet-unpublished other titles in this series, uh, Remember the Internet. So there's Tumblr porn, of course. There's Tori Amos Bootleg Web Ring oh. by Megan Milks. There is MySpace Scene Queens <laughs> by Noor Al-Sibai. I hope I said that right. And Google Glass by Quinn Myers. Oh, God. Remember Google Glass? Yeah. 
I mean, don't worry. It, they're they're coming back. They yeah. are they are regrouping and they are coming back. You are gonna wear a fucking Google lens on your eye from the moment you're born to the moment you expire and maybe even beyond. <laughs> yeah. If they have anything to fucking say about it. I mean, that was basically the premise of that Robin Williams movie, Final Cut. I didn't see Final. Oh, okay. In Final Cut, it was one of Robin Williams' weird dramatic roles, like that I think he's very good in. It's also just weird because I'm like, you're the mom from Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> you're the dad from Mrs. Doubtfire. So in uh, Final Cut, uh, there is a company in the world in the future that sells this chip that you can implant into your baby's head at birth, and it will basically record video and audio. For their entire life. So, like, when they die, you can retrieve it, and you will be presented with this little movie of everything they ever experienced from, like, a first-person perspective. And Robin Williams' character has the job of going through thousands of hours of footage and cutting together basically the best parts for like a character's family after they die. Like once you've died, you had your funeral, they give you this little movie of all your best memories that you had with this person. Aww. You with me? Everyone understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And in the movie, once he like retrieves the chip from someone's like autopsy, uh, there's this little AI program that like takes the footage and like divides it into like different categories so like all of the sleeping time is cut out all of the like masturbation time is cut out (laughs) all of the like standing in the shower is cut out and they like divide it into little like yeah categories of just like dumb behavior and the premise being that uh some people when discovering, because this is done as a child before you can consent, uh, some people, upon discovering that they've been implanted with this chip, kill themselves because they cannot stomach the idea that one day someone will have access to every action they ever took, even in the privacy of their own homes or just with by themselves in spaces with no one watching. Someone was always watching. And so, yeah, it's not like a great movie. I don't know if I could recommend it, but it is, it's got a super fascinating concept that I feel like is more impressive than the actual final film. Yeah, I get that. But yeah, that's sort of the premise of uh, what what social media is nowadays, and, and they want to be in every waking moment of your life to record your data and to sell you stuff and to sell your data to other companies to make a profit. And, yeah, I feel that in the future, in the near future even, like 10 years from now, it will be a privilege to be off the grid. Like, it will be, it will be accessible only to the, to the rich and powerful to not have a Facebook account, to not have a Google Glass device that you have to wear in order to, like, you know, order Function. from McDonald's or yeah. whatever. I'm assuming in 10 years, like, Facebook is going to be, like, integrated to my bank somehow. And so I'm going to have to finally get a fucking Facebook page in order to access my bank account or something. Like, that's coming. There's no way it's not coming. And... You could just use mine, babe. Yeah, but that'll be illegal. And if they find out, I'll, like, go to jail or something. Right, right. I guess it would be. And you see, it, it happened even with COVID. People went cashless really quick. Like, stores and businesses... We're like, no, cash is dirty. We can't take it. And so now, if you're an unbanked person, if you are someone who can't maintain a bank account for whatever reason, you're fucked. 
Like, you, there is no more operating in cash anymore. It's never coming back. All of your transactions henceforth are going to be traceable. They are going to be recorded. They are going to be verified through your biometrics. Like, you are never going to be able to just discreetly pay for something in cash ever again. And in 10 years, yeah, I'm assuming someone's going to start a company where you have to, like, bribe Mark Zuckerberg personally to get your data deleted from Facebook in order to live a quiet life. That's depressing. Yeah. That's scary to think about, man. No, I don't get on Facebook. But maybe once a week, make sure everyone I know is... Alive still. Yeah. yeah, I really only started using it when I moved countries, and now I've blocked half the people who live in the other country that I was trying to keep in touch with. So really, what's the point? Like, that's a fascinating thing to me, actually, is the evolution, let's call it, if I want to be a dickhead, uh, the evolution of, like, the etiquette of blocking. How, like, blocking someone is seen initially as incredibly hostile. So all of the all of the social media websites introduced a mute function. So someone doesn't know that you've effectively blocked them. You know? Yeah. Because like that's that's just funny to me. Like I don't know how to put it into words. It's not really a complete thought yet. I just think it's fascinating how this function that used to be fine because everyone was anonymous on the internet and if someone blocked you like that was the end of it like you had no recourse in which to complain to them or whatever but now that most of us use the internet at least partly with people that we know like blocking your racist aunt or whatever becomes an issue in your real fucking life yeah so they have to introduce this separate function so that they have been basically quietly blocked that, and they don't know about it. And how that whole arc had to sort of play out in real time on social media is, is wacky to me, is interesting. I don't know what it means, but I think it's funny that social media was sort of, at least initially, built to be like a more pragmatic way of dealing with one's social circle and now it just sort of has all of the real problems of dealing with one's social circle just on a website now (laughs) yeah yeah like you can't just be like i don't want to hear from this person anymore and unfollow them you have to like mute them then put them on a special privacy setting so they can't see all of your stuff and like at that point like just unfollow them but you, you can't because that would make your grandma sad and your mom sad or whatever and it's just it's it's funny to me like the, the point of me at least joining the internet was to get away from shit like that oh yeah so definitely. recreating it on a digital space for the benefit of no one but mark zuckerberg is not on my priority list it's super interesting i guess in a like broader scale how tumblr went from initially being this like not a, not a like paradise but like a haven for sex workers queer sex workers queer groups marginalized groups and was over the course of like seven years so sanitized that it lost anything that made it interesting. Like, we all personally remember when the, like, explicit content ban came down. Yeah. In, like, 2018. Which is funny, and she talks about it in the book, how (laughs) the parameters for what Tumblr considers adult content are hilariously 
permeable. Female presenting nipples. Yeah, so for instance, something is like literally in the verbiage of the terms of service that is forbidden on Tumblr is, quote, female presenting nipples. <laughs> which is fucking dumb because nipples can't present a gender. Nope. Because they're inanimate. They don't have a personality or an internal world to critique and articulate. But it's hilarious because Tumblr, I guess, has such a history of being a queer and particularly transgender-friendly space. They didn't just say female nipple. They no. said female presenting. <laughs> but that's what they meant. Which is, which is less coherent. Yeah. Because that means... As she says in the book, like, if someone is a trans woman and they have, like, a photo of them shirtless pre-them coming out, would they have to retroactively go back and censor those nipples because they are technically female presenting now? Yeah. Or, conversely, could a trans man have a topless photo pre-transition or even a topless photo, like, on T? Yeah. And, like, but without a mastectomy surgery yeah. and like those nipples are technically male presenting. Yeah. <laughs> so they're no longer not safe for work. Like it's it's just a hilarious emphasizing of how gendered are our perceptions of what is explicit and sexual about the human bodies are. Like female bodies are inherently sexual and dirty and must be covered and male bodies are fine. Furthermore, like because Tumblr is such a kinky space as well, or was, and, you know, continues to be a little bit, uh -huh. the idea of what counts as explicit content or, quote, sexual content is even further diluted. For instance, like, is two women kissing adult content? Like, probably not, but it is, like, sexual content, maybe? Or... If someone has a weird giantess fetish, like the author of the book, and there's a, you know, drawing or a photoshopped image of a huge female, like, holding a tiny man in her hand or whatever, like, yes. someone could jack off to that. <laughs> that could be someone's fetish. But, but someone could be me. But that doesn't technically meet the requirements of, like, Tumblr's adult content criteria so it's hilariously narrow and again a, a hilariously like male cis heteronormative view of what sex is yeah because the only sex that they really meant is like penetrative yeah well like, what about rope bondage yeah like rope, rope bondage, bondage is still there what's where someone is fully clothed like that's obviously sexual or kinky or fetishistic content but it technically doesn't meet the requirements of what can't be posted on Tumblr, even though it's obviously fetish artwork. Mm -hmm. and so it's just, again, it's, it's a hilariously narrow corporate scope of what sex means. And it's, it's just sad to see a space that was so maintained, I guess, by marginalized peoples for marginalized peoples get that taken away from them in a time when the internet is really boiling down to about six websites. Yeah. Like, everything everything is sort of down to about six websites now. And it's sad. And I think 
people, historians who are not me, will look back on this period one day and say that not making the internet a public utility is going to end up being a huge fucking mistake. Giving this amount of power to private corporate industries on this thing that we all use to live our lives nowadays is going to come back to bite us society in the ass real bad. It's already starting to. Well, in SESTA-FOSTA, which is meant to prevent child and sexual trafficking, hasn't prevented it and has potentially... uh, Made it harder and worse. Encouraged isn't the right word. It's made it worse. Yeah, it, it made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> okay, SESTA-FOSTA. I should look up what the fuck that actually stands for. Okay. SESTA-FOSTA. The Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, SESTA, and Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, FOSTA. So this was a piece of legislation that your highness, your royal lord, Donald Trump, uh, signed into law in April 2018 that, again, on a surface read, sounds real good. And why wouldn't anyone want to support that? The idea was to stop sex trafficking by uh, basically making websites partially responsible for the content that their users upload. SESTA-FOSTA says that if a website is found to be hosting content that advertises sex work, the website can also be held liable for that crime because SESTA-FOSTA says that they are basically running a brothel, which is illegal, is a crime in the United States. And they are now on the hook legally for giving this sex worker space to advertise her services. And what this is dressed up as is a way to stop human trafficking. This you know, Sex workers use the term whore-phobic to describe basically anti-sex worker bias or anti-sex worker stigmatization. I love that. I love it yeah, too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so... Please, no angry letters. This is the term they choose. But SESTA-FOSTA is a hugely whore-phobic, anti-sex work piece of legislation with a veneer of Save the Children slapped over it. Uh-huh. You'll notice a theme, perhaps, if you've been paying close attention, <laughs> that uh, in, in an effort to save the children... Queer people and sex workers and non-normative or people with non-normative sexualities are out in the cold again. Ain't that the way. Anyway, I'm sure we could go on all night, but do you think we talked about the thing? I think we talked about the thing. Yeah. Uh, Go read Tumblr porn if you are involved in fandom in any way. Uh, but especially if you are a queer person involved in fandom, because it is a it is a charming, breezy read that is very insightful and a little optimistic, I would even say, about where we're going from here, you know, explicit content-wise. Hopeful. Yeah. They talk about features uh, like Mastodon and Nude and Red Umbrella Hosting provides offshore web hosting for sex workers. So, yeah, stuff like that. Because, again, if your server is not hosted in America, you are not beholden to American laws. 
and with the digital internet being what it is, it's pretty fucking easy to host your website in any country you want. It's interesting. Uh, Patreon's kicking a bunch of sex workers off. I saw that is yeah. a fucking shame. Mm-hmm. But again, it's because of Sesta Fosta. Like the law is vague enough that they could come after Patreon for profiting off human trafficking when a grown person of consenting age advertises their services or gets paid for sex work through Patreon. Yep. It's a big old shame. Anyway, thanks for joining us. You can find us online on Twitter and Instagram at Blissfully Show, where you will also be able to find a link to our YouTube. If you're listening to us on YouTube, go ahead and smash that bell. Just eviscerate it. You can just press it. Or don't, if you want. (laughs) Or don't, we don't care. I mean, we can't control you, we'd like it, but, you know, you know what to do on YouTube if you like a thing. Maybe if that's your kink. Yeah. If that's your kink, it's an order. Yeah. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) But if it's not your kink, don't bother. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Until next time. Bye. 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 Go buy Tumblr porn. Go buy Tumblr porn and and follow Anna Vans. We will have the book info and the author's social media info below. Yeah. God damn it, Bliss. Well. (laughs) Isn't this your podcast? (laughs) (laughs) It is.